welcome back to yet another episode of the Shadow Realm podcast. It is great to be back here in 2021. We've got a great episode for you here today. Thank you so much for tuning in. We've been a little spotty in the last few months, but we're going to try and make this a weekly podcast from here on out. So definitely stay tuned for more of that. Today with me, I've got our team captain, Henry, back again. He used to be the main host of the podcast. And uh, it's good to have you back, Henry. How you been, man? Yeah, it feels good to be back. It's been a long journey since the last podcast, the last episode that I did here with you. And it seems like we we're just getting to the thick of things when we did that episode with Shannon. And then, uh, of course, we just took a little bit of a hiatus from the podcast, and it was kind of like a little bit of a dry summer, right, with Yu-Gi-Oh! So um, it, it feels good to be back. I feel like the format's starting to get good again, and I think it's it's a fun time to play Yu-Gi-Oh! Oh, yeah. We've definitely got a lot of stuff to talk about in this episode. I'm particularly excited because we're going to be talking about trap cards in one of our segments today and how they've sort of taken the meta back over again. It's been a long time since we've seen trap cards played in competitive Yu-Gi-Oh! And so that has me, a control player, very excited. Of course, we'll be talking about uh, traps. And then we also have a segment about time and how you can use it to your advantage. And we'll have a little discussion on uh, sort of, there's there's been disagreements and a lot of uh, a lot of toxicity around the time rules and the, the fact remains that you can use it to your advantage whether people are like it or not so we'll definitely be talking about that and then of course as usual we'll be closing out our podcast with a segment from road of the king by patrick hoban so i guess without further ado let's let's get into it because we, we don't have a lot of time here we're recording on zoom and it cuts us off after 40 minutes much like a <laughs> yep, 40 match. minutes and then then we then we really get sent to the shadow realm. Then it, then it's <laughs> over. Yeah, I I uh, I I'm I'm so excited to talk about Yu-Gi-Oh again. I I really do have a passion for it. I have to tell you, Zach. I think that a lot of times the format gets stale and it gets boring and it feels like you're just playing the same game over and over and over again. And it just gets a little too predictable. And right when you think that it's just you know mundane you get a ban list and then boom you're back again so i really like the new format i'm enjoying it i'm in, i've obviously we're both on the drytron train with the with the ritual cards and whatnot i guess we'll get into that in a little bit but i i really like the format i think the format has a little bit of everything you have a combo deck you have like a mid-range deck like virtual worlds and then you have the trap decks so uh speaking of trap decks uh, there's a lot of traps in the format so i guess we'll talk about that Zach, why are trap cards good again? Well, the answer might actually surprise you. Uh, if you ask me, I think that traps are big in the format because True King of All Calamities was not banned. And, you know, hold on to your horses here. I actually have a good reason for this. True King of All Calamities is kind of an FTK against combo decks. Like, imagine this format without True King of All Calamities combo decks would still just be able to go off and make their huge monster boards. And with True King of All Calamities in the format, it actually kind of forces you to play a slower game. In order to not immediately die on the follow-up turn, players have started playing cards like Torrential Tribute and even Needle Sealing, which one of our team members, Grant, knows is a really big card in Duel Links. It's a card that I never thought would see competitive play, but 
trap cards are kind of the 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 catch-all that stops you from dying when uh when a when a when a deck like this exists in the format where you can just shut off all monster effects you kind of have to pivot to a different type of card to not die and trap cards are some of the best ways to do that the problem with trap cards in general is that you have to set them before you activate them the only trap cards that have existed in competitive Yu-Gi-Oh for probably the last five plus years except for bomb cards like you know skill drain imperial order except for those ones that are like truly a bomb the only trap cards that have seen play have been ones that break the rules of what a trap card is supposed to be cards like infinite impermanence or evenly matched those cards basically bypass the rules of what a trap is in Yu-Gi-Oh, and so it's really cool for me to see trap cards that behave like trap cards back in the format because there's this, this kind of unknown element to a trap card, right? That's what makes it a trap is that it's an unknown piece of interaction that could come from your opponent. You don't know what they have, but when a combo deck makes its combo, it's kind of just like, okay, I'm going to build this board and you can see all of my cards on the field, break it if you can. But with traps, there's a lot more like head games and, it's it's harder to play around traps and that's that's one thing i really like about them it adds that little little bit of spice to the game i don't know what do you think henry so the reason why i think traps are good are twofold i I agree with you about true king of all calamities because the format is just so shut down by it along with the likes of vanity's ruler and i guess you could argue also uh orange light and the drytron deck as well so you have a lot of interaction there with monster effects and just being able to play monsters. So it, it kind of opens up a gap, right? For, for traps and spells, you know, spells that, that are being played like Droplets and Book of Moon. Uh, it's kind of crazy to see those cards come back, but they all kind of do the same thing, right? They try to interact with your opponent outside of using monster effects. And I think it's, it's nice that they have come back in, in a way. One instance that one specific trap card that we were talking about at locals this past week was crackdown because a lot of people are using crackdown against whether they're maining it in a, in a trap deck like Eldwick or if they're or just siding it against Drytron. if they're playing vanny's ruler you just crack down it and you just win like you just take it and there's not much they can do because it only stops activated effects it doesn't stop the uh, uh, continuous effect of vanny's ruler to prevent your opponent from special summoning so there's so many trap cards. Of course, we saw the likes of Ice Dragon's Prison take in full effect, really reaching about from $7 to becoming like a $40 card throughout the course of pretty much the last format or so. And that card is really good, especially against decks like Virtual World, even against Eldlick, whether you're playing the mirror match, it's really good. It's it's a two for one in a lot of instances and, and, and a blowout. And the other reason why I think traps are, are good is because there are still some control decks where one trap could stop your opponent's turn. And there's still obviously Zodiac. So if Zodiac gets their normal summon stopped, a lot of the time they just stop. And there's also a virtual world where both of those decks are very, very linear. Even though virtual world doesn't really like normal summon reliant, they're very reliant on activating their spell or trap and having a name face up on the field. So if you can get rid of that name, they kind of just have a bunch of vanillas in their hand. So 
traps just interact very well. It gives your hand a lot of options. And it's a little bit of a, a balance, right, with Zeus in the format because Zeus can just wipe out all traps, but Zeus can't be made turn zero. And that's really why traps are good because you could go second and not really have to worry about a card like Spiral Sleeper because when Spirals was the best deck, they would summon Sleeper and they would be able to pop two by the end of your turn. So say you're an Altergeist player, which was one of the better decks when Spiral was meta, you would go second, you would pretty much lose. Like there was nothing that you could really do, like set traps and pass and face Sleeper pop two, standby face, Sleeper pop two more. Oh, you lose. There's no card really like that right now. Like you have Zeus, but that cannot be made turn zero. It has to be going second. Whereas you're really just trying to prevent your opponent from playing like any way to get to an Xyz summon or, you know, have them reach their battle phase. So I think that traps are quite good. And I think what, what makes traps so interesting is that there are so many different traps that do kind of sort of the same thing, but also different. One trap that I personally picked up in the last uh, week or two is Quaking Mirror Force. I think we haven't seen a Mirror Force in such a long time. And when Zoo is the best deck or one of the better decks, and same thing with Virtual World, there was no counterplay to Quaking Mirror Force other than if you just have the, the Cosmic, like, or if you have the Harpy's Feather Dust or whatever. Like, there is no counterplay to it because every deck needs board presence. So if you attack with a board battle, Quaking Mirror Force, you lose everything. Like, you don't have a face-up Xyz monster. You lose pretty much the monster under the board battle, and you lose the board battle itself. So the cards aren't going to grave. They're not going to hand. They're not getting destroyed. They're not even getting banished. They're just putting face down. So there are so many spicy texts that literally come in and out of the format within like a, a span of a week. Like if Zoo's the best deck format, then maybe you play Quicking Mirror Force. If Drytron's the best deck for the next week, then you maybe you play Crackdown. So there are so many different traps. And I think that's what makes it fun. Yeah, man. Traps can fill so many different roles in a deck. Like I mentioned how they like stop you from dying. They're kind of like, you know, your, your last Hail Mary to not die to a combo deck. But in a, in a control format where it's really back and forth, traps can fill a lot of different roles. A, a lot of it becomes like resource management and tempo management. That's another huge, huge part of playing the game. It's like, there are certain resources, Patrick Hoban talks about this in his book, there are certain resources that you start with naturally in a game that you don't like get more of uh, unnaturally, like your normal summon, unless you're using something like Brilliant Fusion, which is now banned, or any other thing that like by an effect gives you an additional normal summon, you just get that one. So like you mentioned with Virtual World, if you are able, if they have to normal summon like Gigi, for example, and then you pop it with Dryden when they target it with Lulu, then the Lulu just stays in their hand and then they're just behind so much. But traps kind of get you back in the game when you're playing that control variant of any deck or if you're just like playing a control strategy in general, you can take things a little bit slower. I love the fact that in this format in particular, because in modern Yu-Gi-Oh!, it's pretty much been like, assemble the board, break it or you lose. And now it's like, I'm not guaranteed to 
get OTK'd on turn two if I don't set up an unbreakable board. Like with Eldlich, you've mentioned, like it's enough to have Conquistador and just uh, the, the Scarlet Sanguine just put a couple bodies on board so you don't die. And then like maybe have Dragoon as one negate or, you know, like it's just really nice to not have to finish a game in five minutes like i remember back in um in the summer of 2018 when it was high goki format i watched matches that was literally person wins dice roll and then they go i have combo do you have hand traps and then they'd be like yes i have hand traps do you have call by the grave and then they'd show the call by the grave and they just go to game two like that is so toxic that kind of combo format is just the least fun imaginable. Yu-Gi-Oh! is supposed to be an interactive card game. And so I love to see interaction actually coming back into the card game, which sounds weird to say, even though we got cards like True King of All Calamities, even though we have Vanity's Ruler in the format, there's still so much interaction. And it really does come down in a lot of cases to who is the more skillful player, who manages their resources better. So I'm I'm super happy. Yes, I I agree. And I think that Konami does this very strategically when they talk about ban list. And I know that there are so many cards that people would like banned, starting with True King of All Calamities. And then when you go past True King of All Calamities, you probably look at all the other lingering effect cards like Abyss Dweller and cards like that. But I think that there are there are a reason why those cards exist, and obviously calamities is probably slightly overpowered but i think that you need some number of those crazy cards just to exist to slow the format down a little bit to allow these trap cards to come into the format because if true king of all calamities didn't exist let me tell you there would be no virtual world and it would just be drytron versus traps and usually drytron wins that matchup but then the trap decks tend to preside for drytron and it just becomes like a very like stupid, uh, very trivial format where it's like, do you have this? Do you have that? Like you were saying. So I appreciate cards like True King of All Calamities. I, I respect that people have to play around it. People have to main deck outs to it. And it really is one of those cards that does balance the format in a way. So I actually have a prediction here. I'm not, me not meaning to make this like a banless prediction video, but I don't think that true king of all calamities is going to get banned I, I i think eventually it will but i don't think right away it might go to one and you might see virtual world get hit in another form but i think that cards like this are left in the format for a reason if if konami thought it was a problem before they would have hit it earlier this card's like three years old so cards like this i think allow uh to go back to your original point i think cards like this allow traps to be good same thing with Vanity's Ruler. So, yeah, I agree with you. I also think that a deck like Eldlick already exists. So it's a, there's always going to be the best trap deck, whether it be Altergeist or Eldlick, whatever has the most oppressive archetype trap cards, I suppose. But in this case, there are really uh, two types, three types of decks. There's like the trap deck, the mid-range, and the combo. And what's so versatile about traps is that it's good in deck that can interrupt in other ways. So like you were saying with Eldlick, um, most Eldlick engines are playing other engines. So 
whether you have Zodiac, where you have Dryden Pop, you also have the threat of Zeus. Um, and then there's the threat, there's also the version uh, that plays the Evil Twins, which is a deck that's widely played at my locals. And you have to deal with uh, the the Link monster that pops on your opponent's turn. So that's always going to be a threat. And then they get to Abomination. And then they, of course, they usually have hand traps or whether it be with Dogmatica, they usually have Punishment and Flare or Winda, you know, whatever uh, they might have. So it's not easy being a combo player at the moment. But then again, you have crazy cards like Zeus that once you get over those first two initial, like whether it be Psalm Strike or whether it be Torrential, once you get first, once you get past one or two of those cards, you usually just make Zeus and win. So it, it's pretty balanced, I would say. Like, trap cards are fair, I would say. They're good. They're not overpowered, but they're needed. Absolutely. And, again, you know me. I'm a sub-terror player through and through. I'm never going to complain to see more trap cards in the format. Although, interestingly, I think sub-terrors are actually very poorly placed in the current format if i was to pick a trap deck to play that was not like say eldlich i would probably actually go for altergeist mm -hmm. yeah i i think altergeist are very underrated as well they always have now that multi-faker's been at three for a while now since that unban list that we had in june right the the deck is actually pretty decent the the one complaint i've always had about the deck is that the best cards in the deck aren't really searchable like you have to have you have to hard draw like the uh, obviously spoofing is not an altergeist card and the other traps you have to set with marionette so it's really just a weird deck but it can compete for sure i think the deck is really cool of course like you have the dogmatica engine which can you know by itself can set up a punishment plus sometimes a schism so that's two traps right there just off an ecclesia and like any other like extender so it, it's pretty it's pretty relevant right now to play around traps. So I think because Harpy Feather Duster is at one and you have crazy cards like Lightning Storm, you have obviously three cosmic. There's so many different ways to get rid of back row. You have evenly matched. So you can't really complain. I mean, these traps could pretty much, uh, you know, all be at three. At the end of the day, you know, Solemn Judgment's at three. So, you know, the sky's the limit with traps. But at the end of the day, they just still lose to the same cards. So they're very fair. I would say you have to prepare. Like, I, I lost in the finals at Locals last Sunday to Stun. Shout out to my boy, Kyle Christian, Mr. Macro. I lost to Inspector Border, uh, Banisher of the Radiance, and the Moon Mirror Shield, and all those, and, and a bunch of traps. And it wasn't easy. You know, I had one, I had one or two light, I had a, I had a lightning storm and a harpy's feather duster and it still wasn't enough. So sometimes it's just, you know, how much can you match your traps with your, with your board presence and going forward, I, I see a bright future for traps, which I couldn't say about a year ago. Yeah. Like I said, it's, it's absolutely insane to think that traps have been considered like widely considered to be, almost unplayable in modern Yu-Gi-Oh! And now suddenly it's like everybody must play traps to play the game. 
right. One thing and, I and do like, really enjoy about them is that they extend the game. I hate games where it right. literally just ends on turn zero, but it does actually kind of segue us into our next segment where we're going to be talking about time and the way that yeah. the, the Konami sanctioned official time rules are actually most consider them to be pretty toxic, but the fact remains somebody has to benefit from them. And there is actually, right. uh, and I know that you have an opinion about this and, and I pretty much agree with you that there is actually a way to take advantage of time in a way that, you know, maybe doesn't feel so great because the rules just kind of suck, but there's, there's a way to do it without being like, I don't know. You're not, it's not cheating or slow playing. There's, there's actually a way to, strategically take advantage of time so i'm actually going to hand it off to you and uh, tell me a little bit about your experience of playing in time because i know you play prank kids a lot and that is a deck that is like it's like it was engineered to win in time yeah no i, I with, with prank kids listen there is two cards in, in the archetype that affect life points and that means if you draw and any any one could get you to the others so you could draw one of let's see 15, depending on what build you're playing, how many plays you're playing. It's like one of 18 cards. So you are super, I think you have like a 93 to 90, like 6% chance of, of seeing one. So it's crazy. Like the, once you get to game three with prank kids, it's, it's, it's a wrap most likely, especially if there's less than five minutes on the clock. So I I do want to address this. I don't want to spend too long on the subject uh, of just me personally, but because I, I, I'm making a separate video for it. But in the last two months or so, since we got Prank Kids Meow Meow, which is the all-weighted-on uh, Link 1 for Prank Kids, where it's making a one-card starter for any Prank Kid, whereas before you had to open a Polymerization plus two Prank Kids. So super easy to start the engine now, which is great. I love the deck. And unfortunately, it does come with the ramifications for other players of, of losing in time. And... I guess it could say that it people say is people say it could bring out the worst in someone if you're getting close to time and you're playing a deck that burns or gains life points and you can take advantage of that. I think that if you slow play, I agree with that. It's not a healthy thing to have a bunch of slow players in the community playing prank kids trying to win in time. But I think that there's a fair way to win time strategically. And that is what I tried to do in my last, in the last format or so. Before I switched to Drytron, I was playing Prank It at almost every local. And I, from the two-week period of around December, around December 3rd to around Christmas, I went to about six or seven locals between a couple of locals on Long Island, uh, of course, Gaming Universe in Flushing, which just opened again. And we got, uh, you know, I got a lot of flack for playing prank kids, of course, because of winning in time. But I never slow play. That's something I want to address right now, because a lot of people who I've beaten in that two week, four, that two week span where I actually ended up with a record of 24 two and one tie so i had 24 wins two losses in that entire two week span and one tie and i just i probably won six or seven matches in time just naturally but what i do have to say about 
slow, uh, winning in time, it shouldn't be synonymous with slow playing because a lot of people tell me I'm a slow player. But the fact of the matter is that I play faster at a faster tempo and a faster speed than most players, mo- most of my opponents. Now, there are players that maybe are at the same level as me where I take a moment to think about my play that say, oh, come on, Henry, like, I, I know what you're up to. But that's just them trying to take advantage because they want me to hurry because they want to win in time. So it's really like, you know, eat or be eaten. And it's, it's sad. But the fact of the matter is I never intentionally slow played. And a lot of people don't like me in my locals, to be flat out honest. People don't like me in the Long Island area. They don't like me because I won a lot of Yu-Gi-Oh lately and a lot of Yu-Gi-Oh in time. And they know my strategy. But my strategy is not to win in time. Like I'm playing an actual deck where I could summon a quick play Raigeki and Raigeki my opponent twice. So it's not like I'm playing a deck that just burns damage or just gains life points. I also play Mystic Mind in my deck, but I don't have to deck you out with Mystic Mind to win. It's just a part of my strategy where I gain, I gain uh, resources while my opponent's trying to out a field spell. So it's really like, you know, who's, who's preparing the best for these situations, right? So I set up my, my deck to play Mystic Mind, which isn't even particularly good in the format. There's a lot of back row removal with Chuke, with Conquistador, a lot of main deck back row like Cosmic Cyclone and whatnot. So it's not amazing, but I built my deck to simply gain advantage. I tag out monsters. I add monsters to my hand. I special summon. I, I link summon into whether it be Doodle or Bow Wow, depending on whose turn it is. I tag it out. I add more monsters into my hand. And my opponent still has monsters on their side of the field. So I inv- pretty much invented, people give me credit for this, this deck list uh, with Mystic Mind. I pretty much invented a lock where I'm constantly gaining resources, like hard, hard resources, while my opponent's trying to just play the game. And naturally, since the games get longer, I am more prepared in these uh, situations where it gets close to time because I naturally know the grind game. I'm more well-versed in these scenarios than my opponent because someone who's trying to beat the format, they're, they're, they're not prepared for these alternative scenarios where they have to deal with a mystic mind or they have to deal with prank kids in time. So a master duelist will know how to, you know, play against any situation. I think there are just so many players right now who are considered good in the community that just know how to do one thing really well, whether it be a virtual world player who is considered a pro player, maybe sponsored or whatnot, but they, all they know is how to summon calamities in the past. I think that when I play the game, I try to test every single person to see how they react to different scenarios. And unfortunately, think back to the, the segment, time is one of those scenarios. So the person who is more prepared for every single scenario ought to win the game of Yu-Gi-Oh! And I, I don't want to win. I don't intentionally want to win exclusively these abridged Yu-Gi-Oh! duels where it's just me winning in time because really that's not a true test of resource management. However, at the end of the day, not every Yu-Gi-Oh match is based on resource management. It's just, it's just logistically, you need to finish matches earlier than an hour. So uh, could the time rules be revised? Sure, that's fine. I would probably win equally as much because most of these games, I'm going first and I 
could make a board. But instead of me playing, you know, my usual strategy of trying to set up a Mystic Mine or a Buster, or uh, I should say Battle Butler lock, I'm winning in time. So it's just alternative win conditions. And when you look at the great players like Patrick Hoban or Billy Brake, when you look at their deck profiles, they all had alternative win conditions. So I think that there's a fine line between slow playing because, listen, I think if you've been at a, at a high-stake tournament, we've all done it, and it's all been done to us. You know, I've, I've been guilty of it once at a regional qualifier, and I'm not proud of it, but I moved past it, and I said, I'm not going to do that again. That was, that was a bad move. You have to admit from your mistakes. So now I try to prepare myself for when I'm going into time I'm going to play at a fair tempo where most of the time the judge is watching because I have like a reputation apparently. And I always play faster, if not the same pace as my opponent. I side deck. I'm always done siding before my opponent's done siding. I, I put the deck on the table. I say, ready when you are. And people call me a slow sider. So I'm not here to, to try to win people's uh, support, but I did want to explain myself a little bit. And I think that if you can come into the, to our locals or our regionals, whenever we get those back with a game plan for time, that's not you just slow playing and not committing an action, because I was always committing an action, whether it be setting cards, whether it be, you know, trying to extend the game state. That's another thing I would, I would do is I would simply set monsters in game two. And that's not slow playing. That's just playing the game. And even if I think that I couldn't win, I would play as many cards as I could. And then I would get to that last game three where I am simply dominant in those scenarios. And so my message to you, the, the viewers is, you know, you could think you could have your opinion about uh, winning in time because there's a lot of decks that do it. Gookie did it with the Gaga Ga Cowboy. Uh, Pendulums could do it as well with, with certain cards. Rockets did it with Scarlight whether they cited in Scarlight to win in time. And now, lo and behold, you have a card called Cyber, Cyber Angel Natasha. And that card gains life points in time as well. So be prepared to lose to a Drytron player in the last minute or so, because that's what I'm trying to do. So if you don't have a plan, you're just going to, you're just going to lose. And it, it sucks that it's that way, but you have to have a game plan one way or the other. What do you yeah, think about this? You, you bring up a really interesting point here that slow playing is not the same thing as strategically using the clock as an alternate win condition. Now, what exactly do we mean by that? You mentioned that you're making plays and you know the, the Konami definition of slow playing is to not commit actions in a timely fashion. So if you're setting cards if you're summoning monsters or, you know, if people have definitely rushed me before where I was in, a, I was definitely playing like, uh, I was playing Subterra against, I think it was Sky Striker and I had Imperial Order up. So it was in their best interest to rush me through my turn so that it would burn me faster than I right. could kill them. But the fact is you Correct. have and a reasonable amount of time to commit any action in any game state. You know, don't take, 30 seconds to think about an action, but you know, 10 to 15 seconds per action is, I would say pretty reasonable. Right. And a lot and of times others... that would just be like, just go, 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 go. But you know, you, you need to have right. a reasonable amount of time to actually make a play. And that's not slow playing. That is just playing the game. So watching the clock 
and being aware of time will definitely work in your favor. We definitely in no way condone, you know, taking two minutes to make a turn or taking seven minutes to side when you're only allowed three minutes. We definitely do not condone that for sure. Right. And I, to build on to that point, I think that rushing people is almost just as bad as slow playing because Absolutely. people who are, who are rushing people are equally as um, malevolent. They, they want to abuse the time rules. So there's no difference between slow playing and rushing your opponent. Now, it's one thing if they're taking forever. If they're taking forever, you simply call a judge and they get a warning and you move on. But there are people who have rushed me to make an action. And I'm not going to lie, that just makes me want to take my time longer because I will not be rushed just for my opponent's benefit. And I've told my opponent, like, they tell me, can you play faster? I tell them no. So I always say that I, I play at my own pace and my pace is usually very fair. It's always, again, I never play slower than my opponent. If my opponent's taking five minutes to set five cards and I'm going to take five minutes to play my prank kid combo, whether it be thinking on what prank kid to summon, because I have to play around Nibiru. I have to play around Ghostbell. I have to play around Skullmeister. I have to play around Ash. I have to play around Gamma. You think it's easy? It's not. So I'm not just slow playing. There's some times where you actually think of like what you have to do. And even though you do it a thousand times, it's never the same. There's always unique circumstances. You have to make reads. And the good players don't understand that. The great players do. So I, I would like to think of myself evolving as a player. And I got a lot of flack and I felt bad about myself. But as I reflect upon this experience of going to locals and pissing people off with my strategy, I just have to say tough, you know, like you guys, you know, beat me. That's how, that's how you uh, stop me from winning. So Don't get mad, get good. Right. Don't, don't hate the player, <laughs> hate the game. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's ultimately it's up to Konami to fix these as most people would consider very toxic time rules but until that gets fixed somebody has to benefit from it and again right. we're not saying to benefit from it in a toxic way but be cognizant of the clock and that doesn't mean rush your opponent that doesn't mean take forever to make a play that just means be aware of how much time is left and be aware of what you could lose to or what could provide an alternate win condition Exactly. Uh, 100%. And like, for instance, if you're in time and you're playing against say Drytron and they have a Natasha in grave and they activate Medianus and you have a ghost spell, whereas usually you would probably save it for like the alpha, you're probably ghost spelling the Medianus unless they have Fafnir in which you can't negate it. But you're usually ghost spelling the, the Medianus to summon the, the card that can lose you the game. So uh, to, to end the segment on, a, on, on sort of like a positive note, because we're talking about time rules, I always like to tell the story. <laughs> so the first ever event after we got this, this updated time rule, I don't know if you were there, but it was YCS Secaucus, New Jersey. Were you? I was there, event? actually. Awesome. So round one, there was, uh, this was, so this was the first event with the new time rules. I think it was being streamed, if I'm not mistaken. And a lot of people were tuning in to like, see how the new time rules would progress. And I watched a game where I'm not going to name names, but there was a Trickstar player involved and he uh, went to our locals in, in Flushing. And 
he was playing Trick Stars, and I forgot what his opponent was playing. I want to say it was either Invoked or Spirals, and it was a deck that added a lot of cards. So the Trick Star player had to use the, uh, the, the little duelist room. He had to go to the bathroom. And there was like a minute left. There was like 30 seconds left on the clock. And they paused. I guess they had a judge officiate the entire thing, but they paused time just for them. The Trick Star duelist went to the bathroom like try to hurry up like took five minutes came back the entire the round was over for everyone else in the room it was just them playing so the entire room was watching them and he comes back his opponent like normal summons an alistair like adds a card and then like uh the trickstar player goes normal summons a candina or a candina search licorice tag out summon licorice passes turn two seconds left on the clock opponent draws a card and the trick star player won i'm like wow if that's what it takes that i i couldn't like i knew that once that these time rules were going to take effect that something like that would happen and it happened round one of the very first event and i was i i was dying i thought it was hilarious yeah that was actually the breakout event for trick star sky striker if i remember correctly Yes, a lot of good players. I remember I played Max Reynolds, uh, Jeff Jones' boyfriend, and he was on it, and he beat me in time with Trisbania. Of I let him take back a play. I think he let me take back a play earlier in the match, so I had to let him take back one and let him summon Trisbania. And uh, all in all, it was a good fight, so uh, GG to Max Reynolds. But anyway, uh, that'll lead us into our final segment of the show. So we usually do... A little Road of the King action here. So I'm going to quarterback this one, if you don't mind. Uh, we got Creation and Innovation. So this is a short segment from Patrick Hoban's book on page 249 for those reading at home. And I'm going, to, I'm going to start off with a little bit of a quote from Peter Thiel. And this is in Patrick Hoban's book. But it's from... The original book is called Zero to One, which is a book that I actually picked up and started reading. So it's quite an interesting read for those who are interested in business and uh, technology and things like that. So, uh, so Creation and Innovation is the title of the segment. And it starts with a quote that says, doing what we already know how to do takes the world from one to N and meeting the number of changes, adding more of something familiar. But every time we create something new, we go from zero to one. The act of creation is singular as, in, as is the moment of creation and the result is something fresh and strange. So Patrick Coben obviously applies this to Yu-Gi-Oh and talks about innovation within the community. And he talks about if you're following the curve, then you're probably behind. And believe it or not, when I was in college, I actually wrote a paper on the Yu-Gi-Oh community in general. And I cited Patrick Coben's book as a secondary source. And this was back when the book first came out. So uh, Patrick Hoban loved the, uh, the paper, it was like 20 pages, but I actually talked about this a lot because a uh, controversial issue when Yugi Tubing got big was the, the issue of net decking, right? So people right. don't really talk about it as much now, but when Patrick Hoban and Jeff Jones were the better players. A lot of people would just net deck their YCS first place or ARG first place deck profile. And people said, oh, that's toxic. Like you have to change a card. Otherwise you're a toxic player. Whereas now if, you know, say Hani or someone puts out a list, we encourage it. 
there's dual academy where you could pay to take someone's, you know, to take someone's list, which granted it's a business, but still pretty much net decking. And a lot of people do it, which is fine because when we talk about a zero to one, when we're copying someone's, uh, you know, content card for card, whether it be the deck profile card for card, then we're behind because those players are already creating something new. They're going from, uh, we're going from one to N. Say we make a slight change on the deck. We're going from one to N where they're going from zero to one because they're starting something like they're starting from scratch and they're starting a new idea for the next format. It might look similar, but the theory is different because the format always changes. So I do want to talk about a little how I think that it's important for, for people to, to, to go, to try to go from zero to one themselves. Now, obviously we want to go based off of sound theory and theory that applies to the format in, in a, in a, particular way but at the same time I think that there's a lot of people that just go out there and play with standard and it, it it can get people some success whether it be at the local level or even the regional level but I think in my opinion when I look at a YCS caliber player where they're consistently doing well they're always doing something new I think that someone who does this very well is Cody Angela usually he's playing something very fresh and new and he's doing something that's um, innovative. And same thing with Jesse Cotton, obviously they're premier players. So where do you stand on this? Do you think that going from zero to one makes you a better player? Or do you think it's more useful to just start from one and go to N and live with the mediocre success that you'll get with that? Well, it's 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 honestly a bit of a, a tough thing because the the fact of the matter is that the best players are definitely going to be very few, right? There there's only so many Jesse Cottons and Cody Angelofs and Patrick Hobins in the world, and so for the vast majority of players, it's going to have to be enough to see a winning deck list and maybe make their own changes. But I don't think we should be so precious about it, right? It's completely fine in my book if you were to look at a winning deck list make a few changes maybe adjust for your locals or maybe adjust for what you think the anticipated meta is going to be but I think for the vast majority of players the act of creation is extremely difficult and most players are going to take like a lot of players take creativity putting that in air quotes to just be bad ideas a lot of players just really aren't good at figuring out like what solid good theory is and that's what actually separates the best players from mediocre or even average or above average players like the the legendary players are the ones who are able to set the trends and i think that's why deck deck uh, net decking exists honestly that for there's a few who you know pave yeah. the way lead the way and everyone follows. And, you know, occasionally you might be someone who comes up with a great idea, but, you know, not all ideas are created equal and it's hard to come up with a good idea. It's, it's right. a lot easier to become competent with technical play than it is to come up with some crazy new idea that just might work. I remember in uh, YCS Chicago, you know, everyone was expecting Altergeist, uh, Sky Striker, nobody except for a handful of people saw the danger thunder combo strategy coming 
And even more than that, uh, nobody saw the lunalite danger OTK, like uh, Edisepcion called it just like the attack deck. Nobody saw that coming either. Those were two like wildly different decks that kind of use similar theories, but uh, had completely different end goals. And that's part of the reason that those decks were so successful is that nobody saw them coming. They were just like completely, as you said, like strange and new and fresh and nobody knows how to deal with those things they become less effective once people have adjusted to them and have learned them and they're no longer strange and fresh. And so that's, that's really where like the cutting edge of competitive success in Yu-Gi-Oh comes from in a lot of ways. So I don't know what you think about that. Yeah. Well, I agree. I think that when I wrote my paper still pretty much holds true. Those who are new to the community and literally starting from zero, you talk from zero to one, these people are just, trying to grasp the the concepts of the game. And usually when that happens, I tell someone to go and play the most standard before I tell people to play like Salomon Greats. And now I tell people to play virtual world, like very cookie cutter decks that do one thing really well. And you can learn the intricacies of a format very smoothly. However, when you start to get to that intermediate level of where you're going to locals and you're doing, you know, maybe getting top, eight or top four at like a 20 man locals, then maybe you're intermediate, but you're not winning those locals yet. I would say the best way you could do that is to just fail a lot. And I, you know, consider myself an above average player and I failed a lot. Uh, like I remember I, you know, I would come with my own ideas. I played like Shadal Cosmos when, when the deck first came out and I thought it was the wave. It wasn't the wave. But I thought it was good. I convinced myself it was good. I thought I was like Patrick Hoban 2.0 playing it. And it wasn't. Like, it just wasn't good. There, there were certain ideas that even recently, like I put some ideas out there that just flat out weren't good. I, I thought they were, but they weren't. And there's no shame in that. I think that I like to see people, like when I see someone come up to me and I, there's an idea where it's clearly not a good idea, I... I entertain it because I respect that they came up with it and they put time into it and they're trying to think left and right. Whereas everyone else, everyone else is trying to think up and down. So there's this model of thinking called design thinking that I learned in, in college from a, uh, an outside professor and lo and behold, Patrick Hoban's company also uses it now to think of bigger and better ideas of how to improve their brand. And it's basically coming up with crazy ideas, trying to force connections and making something useful out of it. And the only rule is that you can't say no to an idea. So it's useful if two, if two people sit in a room and they say, well, what if we play Alter Guys cards in the Drytron deck? Like that makes no sense. But out of, uh, out of that logic, like out of that way of thinking, you can come up with maybe like maybe there's a good trap that you could play that's maybe played in Altergeist, but would be really good in Drytron or something that's just like a, a random example. But that's the way uh, innovators think, right, in Yu-Gi-Oh! And that's the way I, I try to think. Now, what I will say to get my final thought on this matter is that I think it's important to look at previous deck profiles from other formats. And what I mean by this is when I did well with Thunder Dragons, I actually looked at Patrick Hoban's Mermel deck profile from ARG Raleigh 2013. 
And it just has a great mixture of starters, extenders, bombs. And the format was similar to the current format because the best deck then was Dragon Rulers. And the best deck when Thunder Dragons was out was Orcus. So I consider those very two decks similar. And there was also like a trap deck, like, uh, I don't know, I think it was Dino Rabbit or something like that. And yeah. it was a similar format. So I, can, I just looked at what he did and what the cards did and what those cards accomplished. And I said, mathematically, I'm going to do the same thing. Obviously, the cards are completely different, but the roles of those cards build were similar. And so you could take the same idea, ideologies from your predecessors, but apply it in different ways. And that's what makes a good duelist a great duelist. Absolutely. And, you know, I think... Uh... I think we've just about exhausted this topic, but I've, I've yeah, had a really no, great time sure. uh, back here in the driver's seat. Once again, on the shadow realm podcast, uh, I want to thank you all again right. for tuning in and definitely look forward before, to a oh, lot more episodes. Uh, go ahead. Right. Oh, uh, before we go, we just want to shout out that we have a little coaching system going and it's from Bamani through Bamani lounge. And essentially what we're doing is for $5 a month, we're offering a coaching service where we have a group chat. We talk to you. We have one-on-one -on -one service. We, we coordinate it very organized and we go through Dueling Book and we help you through Discord voice chats. And it's a, it's a cheaper alternative to Duelist Academy, but it's no knockoff because we also allow the players that do the best to, be, to graduate and be sponsored by Team Lionheart, which is the official team of Money Lounge. And if any of you out there are listening, whether it be the, the day after this is released or whether it be a month after, look into it, contact us on Facebook, go through Bamani Lounge, or you can contact me or Zach and give us a message. We'll get you involved. And for only $5 a month, you could become a you could start as a good duelist and graduate to being a premier duelist so uh look look from that from the money lounge and look out for our edl pro tournaments as well absolutely we are going to be hitting big in the year 2021 so yeah thanks for that henry and uh thank yep. you again for tuning in to another episode of the shadow realm podcast this is your co-host, Zach Alder, signing off. Good luck, have fun, duelists, and we will see you in the next episode.